Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We'll be meditating on chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. What we're going to do is we're going to start reading from the top of the chapter. So we'll start reading from Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll read through to verse 18. This is God's holy word, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to be in your house, and we're thankful to have an opportunity to hear your word read in our ears. And we're grateful, Lord, to have time set aside where we can sit and think and meditate on your word, where we can ask ourselves what you would have us to do, where we can ask ourselves what you are saying to us. Lord, we sit at your feet. We wait upon you. We would ask that you would indeed speak to us, that you would tell us what we need to hear. Lord, we would ask that you would change us and that you would help us. And we'd ask that you would hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. 
Are any of you runners? I know there's at least a couple runners in here. Uh, there's, yeah, there's several. <laughs> well, there is a man thought of as the top marathon runner in the entire world, and his name is Eliud Kipchoge. He is a two-time Olympic gold medalist and has become the first person to run a marathon in under two hours, and the length of this marathon is 26.2 miles. And because of Mr. Kipchoge's accomplishments, runners seek his advice on running marathons. Kipchoge says this, one tip to improve your running is to walk your talk. Be consistent in your training and dedicate yourself fully. Improvement goes hand in hand with dedication. And then he continues, be, be patient and grow. Don't focus on just one event. In running, it's important to grow slowly, to be patient, but above all, be consistent in training. In a marathon, he says, there are lots of challenges, ups and downs. There is pain in training, pain in running, and joy at the end of the marathon. And our Christian lives are, in some ways, like running a marathon. And in our passage, Paul gives the Philippians directives on how to work out their Christian lives. And in the last half of verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does Paul mean when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And how are we supposed to go about doing this anyways? These are the questions I want to ask as we think about this text, as we meditate on this text tonight. We're going to begin with the first heading, which is objective for working out your salvation. Objective for working out your salvation. The very first word in our text is the word therefore. And it's referencing everything that has preceded this in chapter 2. Paul is saying, you've just heard me tell you to be humble and of one mind, to count fellow believers as more important than yourselves, and to look after the interests of others. We've considered the example of our Lord, how Jesus took on the human nature and how he lived this out right before us. He served with humility until his race was complete. And then he was highly exalted and given a name that was above every name. And now I'm going to give you instructions, instructions on how to work out your lives as Christians. And in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul commends the Philippians for their history of faithfulness. He says, continue to respond to my instructions. You've always obeyed. Keep up the good work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He isn't saying work for your own salvation. No, 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 no. He, he's just finished reminding the Philippians of Christ's finished work on the cross. 
that, that verb there, work out, in verse 12, work out your salvation, it carries the meaning of, of working to full completion, to, to complete that work. Have you guys ever heard of senioritis? Right? I know I heard about it my last year in seminary. They talk about senioritis. This is um, supposed to be uh, symptom, symptoms that seniors get in high school and in college. Once they're getting toward the end, they can see the end on the horizon. Uh, they start uh, to coast, uh, just relax. And, and Paul is saying, don't coast. Don't coast. Paul wants to see the Philippians progress in their faith. We see that in chapter 1, verse 25, don't we? If you look at the text, you'll see that. He, he wants to see their progress in faith. And then in verse 27, he tells them that they are to do what? They are to strive for the faith. This is a theme that he's been driving as he works in writing this letter. He's encouraging, or encouraging them to push forward, to make every effort to advance. This is going to be a theme that we're going to hear in the book of Philippians. Turn with me to chapter 3. And draw your attention to verse 13. Paul writes, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul wants the church to press on in the faith. But what is the church to do? What are our our objectives? In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul says, don't be complainers. Don't murmur. And this is invoking that language of ancient Israel who grumbled against Moses and Aaron, who grumbled against leadership. From time to time, you will meet people in the church who are disgruntled. Sometimes they move from church to church, negative, discontent, never satisfied always seeming to find fault. Be cautious. They often seek to recruit people. Other times you may run across people in the church with a contentious spirit. They can be combative, and they're often provocative. Some even convince themselves that their critical spirit is a virtue that the church should be thankful for. Directed by their misguided principles, they seek to make others in their own image. They would enlist you, influence you. Beware. Working as a team isn't always easy, especially when there is disagreement. Sometimes you may feel like leadership is making the wrong decision. Submitting isn't easy. Resist the temptation to grumble and dispute. 
Instead, pray, seek counsel, use discernment, be measured, reasonable, humble, wise. Paul's been driving home the church's need to be of one spirit. We we just read that. To be of one mind, to have that mindset of Christ, having the same love in full accord, united. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Don't practice sin. Christians should walk in holiness. Follow Christ. Be holy. Be humble. Serve others. Be blameless innocent of charges, beyond accusation, beyond reproach. You are sons and daughters of light, children of God. We ought to reflect the image of our Father in heaven. And where are we to do this? Look at verse 15. It says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul is calling us, the church, to take a stand for Christ in public. He's calling the church to advance the gospel. But this is sure to cause opposition, conflict, and suffering, isn't it? You're going to need strength for working out your salvation. That is our second heading. Strength for working out your salvation. People who run marathons, they need to train hard. And they need to take care of their bodies. They need to really watch their health. And so often the the pros, they have a whole team of people that are monitoring them. And they certainly have a nutritionist Because again, they they need to make sure that their bodies are strong, that they'll have the power and strength to endure the race. And likewise, Christians need power and strength to live lives that are glorifying to God and to endure until the Lord calls them home or returns. In verse 13, Paul points the Philippians to the source of power and strength. He writes, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice that it's God who works in you for his good pleasure. You see, God must work in you before he can work through you. It's a maxim we learn there. God prepares, strengthens, and equips his people by the power of the Spirit. Verse 13 says, it is God who works in you. And our English word energy comes from the same Greek word that is translated as works there in verse 13. It is God who works in you. In John 14, Jesus said that Christians would be provided with a helper, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. He is God, loving, caring, compassionate, holy, He has come to 
live with you, to hear you, to walk with you, to equip you, to instruct you, to empower and intercede for you. How does the Holy Spirit mature you? How does he go about sanctifying you? What tools does he use to transform you? He uses the word, sacraments, prayer, and providence. God speaks to his people through his word. He speaks through preaching. He speaks through his word being read. Are you reading the scriptures? Are you seeking God in the scriptures? Are you setting aside time? Are you listening for his voice? Are you asking, Lord, what is it that you're telling me? Speak to me. You know how badly I need to hear from you. You know how I need your direction, your encouragement, your care, Lord. I need to know that you're there. You see, the Lord uses the reading and preaching of his word as an instrument or as a tool. The Lord uses his word in order to shape and mold and encourage you. Parents, don't you primarily shape and mold the character of your children with words? You do, right? You speak to them. You try to reason with them. You you encourage them. You, You tell them what they ought to do. You use words in order to shape them and mold them. Likewise, the Lord shapes his children through his word. God also uses the sacraments as a means of grace to strengthen his people. What we need to know and recognize is that the Lord's Supper is no empty ceremony. The scriptures testify that if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, some people get sick and some people even die. The supper is no mere memorial. The believer encounters Christ at the table. You spiritually feed upon his body and blood to your spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Your union and communion with Jesus is confirmed at the table. You could feel him. Paul is writing to the Philippians from prison in Rome. He's incarcerated He's lost all his freedom. But he's not powerless. Why? Because Christ has been given all power and authority. And Paul has been given a powerful weapon. It's the power of prayer. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul writes, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. He knows that God is in control, that there is power in prayer, real power in prayer, and that the sovereign Spirit can move and accomplish all of his holy will. And believers have God's ear. 1 Peter 5.7 says, Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
God hears the prayers of his people. The remarkable truth about prayer is that God desires to give his grace and Holy Spirit to us when we depend on him. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. Rely upon God. He is working in you and upon you. He shapes and molds the character of his people. And he does this sometimes through circumstances. He is orchestrating everything. He doesn't make mistakes. He is perfect. Life is unfolding exactly according to his decree. And God uses circumstances like a tool in the hands of a skilled craftsman, like a personal trainer who prepares a runner for a long-distance run. Think of Moses and David and the apostles. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness of Midian preparing sheep before he was ready to go before Pharaoh that God would deliver his people. What about David? David was a shepherd boy who had to become a general and then a fugitive before he was ready to be king. The apostles were developed over the course of years as they walked with Jesus. God worked in each of these servants to prepare them for their calling and for their purpose. God tells the Philippians that God is working in them both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He instructs them to hold fast to the promise for working out your salvation. That's what we'll consider in our third heading promise for working out your salvation. God gave us, the church, the Great Commission, right? We are to bring the gospel to the lost and to the dying in the world around us. We are to make disciples of the nations, teaching them all, baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ has commanded teaching them that God is holy, that he hates sin. Right? People are in desperate need of forgiveness and healing, forgiveness of sin and shame that's only found in the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And hell is a real place. A real place. The world is blind. They don't see a need for forgiveness. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and they don't want to hear about the God of the Bible. They don't want to hear about sin and moral absolutes, and they don't want to follow Jesus as Lord. In verse 15, Paul tells the church that they are to walk as lights in the world. He says the world is full of darkness. It's crooked and it's twisted. The world needs light. It desperately needs light. Paul says shine as lights in the world. And he continues in verse 16. He says, holding fast to the word of life. 
You're to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. And the word of life stands broadly for the overall message of the scriptures. And Jesus told us that the scriptures are about him. And specifically, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's seen in Ephesians 1.13. What is the word of truth? The word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. Hold fast to the gospel. Cling to it. Preach it to yourself. Don't let it go. Your right standing before God is in Jesus' finished work. Christ is your righteousness. He is the gospel. He promises that if you repent and believe, you will be saved. Stir up your affection for Christ. You grow to love someone by spending time with them. Sit at Jesus' feet by reading his word and listening to him speak. Talk to him. Meet him at his table. Glow with affection for your Savior. Illuminate the darkness by holding forth the word of light. 2 Corinthians 3.3 says, You are a letter from Christ. You, you are a letter from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Jesus said, let your light shine before men. Well, the Philippian church had been doing just that. They were faithful. They were a church with a heart for evangelism, and they were partnering with Paul to advance the gospel. We see that right in the opening of this letter. And their faithfulness had led to what? Suffering. Paul's writing from prison, and the Philippians are facing opposition from their surrounding community. And some of this has caused, begun to cause division from within. Paul, of course, reminds the Philippians that God granted them an opportunity to suffer for Christ's sake. It's an honor, he says. It's an honor to be granted, that you are granted, to suffer for Christ. Right? It's an honor to stand for someone you love. It's not a burden. Of course you would suffer for someone you love. You take a bullet for someone you love deeply. Paul is in prison and facing a capital charge, and he may be executed soon. In verse 16, Paul says, Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. You see, Paul wants, he deeply wants the Philippians to remain faithful, to keep running, to complete the race. He wants them to strive forward to the finish line. He realizes that he might be executed in Rome, and still his heart is full of worship. There were certain ceremonies 
where a priest would pour out a drink offering in worship to God. Paul compares his life to the drink offering. He pictures his life being poured out in worship and service to God. And he's glad. He's glad. He rejoices. He says, if I'm executed for planting churches and spreading the gospel, well, praise God. I'm glad. You know what? Jesus is worth it. He is worthy. Look what he has done for me. And it's at this point that we learn something. A truth that is so foreign to our terrestrial thinking. A promise for working out our salvation. That there is joy, true joy found when we suffer for Christ's sake and the advancement of the gospel. True joy is found when we faithfully submit and serve Jesus as Lord, especially when our faithfulness leads to suffering for his sake. When we demonstrate that we love him more than we love ourselves, when our hearts burn with love and worship. The Lord Jesus is worthy. If Paul suffers in worship and service to Jesus, he says, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And in verse 18, he continues, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul and the Philippian church were partners in the gospel. They displayed a fellowship in the gospel at the deepest level. They shared in sacrificial service, suffering with Christ for the advancement of the gospel. In verses 12 through 18, Paul gives the Philippians directions on how to work out their lives as Christians. He says, don't grumble or complain. Don't be divisive. Walk in holiness. Hold up the word of life, and let your light shine in this dark world. Remember that God is working in you. He is the power provider. Dedicate yourself to training. Devote yourself to the word, sacrament, and prayer. Stir up your affection for Jesus. Offer yourself in sacrificial service to him. You see, the Christian life is like running a marathon. You must be patient and grow. You must be consistent in your training and dedicate yourself. In the Christian life, there will be a lot of challenges, ups and downs. There's pain in training, discomfort and joy in running, an incomprehensible joy at the end of the marathon when you cross the finish line and fall into the arms of Christ Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, running is hard. It is a lot of work. And Lord, when we see those uphill parts of the run or those 
roads with potholes. Lord, you know how we know roads with potholes. When we're running and our providence is like that, it is hard. Lord, when it's cold outside, it's hard to run. When the terrain is rough, it's hard to run. Lord, how we need your power. How we need the strength that only you can provide. Lord, we do ask that you would do just that, that you would give us a hunger for your word, a desire to sit at your feet. Lord, we would come in admission that sometimes, sadly, it is very difficult for us to set aside time to read, to set aside time to pray. But Lord, we know that the desire to do so doesn't come within the goodness of ourselves, but that you pour it into us. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would pour into us a desire to read your word and to pray, that we would have discipline. Lord, we, uh, that we would love even to be at your feet. Lord, would you make our reading fruitful, our praying fruitful? Would you help us? Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you give us clarity? Help us to run, Lord. Help us to run, Lord, looking at the long run, not just the sprint. Give us what we need, Lord, and help us to trust you and hang on to you to be an encouragement to one another. Lord, we'd ask for your help. We'd ask that you'd hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.